You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Do you still have money in the stock market? And if so, are you concerned about the ups and downs you're experiencing there? I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. I'm no expert in the stock market, but I do know that there's an incredible opportunity right now to sell your stock and invest the capital gain into opportunity zones. So you might be wondering, does it make sense to sell my stock? Well, today's guest may be able to give you some insight on whether you should sell or hold. John Grace founded Investors Advantage Corporation in 1979. It's in Westlake Village, California. And he and his company pride themselves on not taking the same old investment approach as many companies in the financial planning industry do. Instead, his company invests in independent research, which is one of the cornerstones of their investment strategy that helps investors see the big picture so they can make more appropriate and informed decisions. And that's why we've got him here today on The Real Wealth Show. So John, welcome. So glad to have you here. Thank you, Kathy. Let's have some fun and take a look at the headlines and what maybe the public is interpreting versus what may be reality. Sounds good. We had a pretty big drop in stocks. Are you concerned about that? Well, um, concerned, sure. I mean, ready to jump out of a window? No. Uh, <laughs> suggesting that people look to see, you know, what can one do? And then unfortunately, the majority of my profession is really good at saying, Kathy, just buy and hold, sit and take it, weather the storm, you know, just add more to the account, uh, everything will be <laughs> fine. I mean, those answers are the same we've had for the last 40 years that I'm aware of. And not as though we have demonstrated we've learned anything to help people understand when buy and hold, for example, makes sense and putting in systems where you sell and buy makes sense because they're not all the same and they don't work the same for different people as things change. So in this case, do you think people will be jumping in and buying? Is it an opportunity or is it time to sell? Well, see, it depends, right? And it's not so much as one other thing. It's not based on age. It's based on your goals. In other words, if your children are looking at, should I get in now? I'm going to say, absolutely. And do not worry about what the market does. Who cares? When do you go out to get the seashells? When the tide is out, that's the way you collect more seashells. And then the tide comes in and it becomes kind of dicey. So wouldn't you really, I'm going to suggest to you, don't tell your parents you're doing this, but when the market declines and you're putting in some money like every month, you want to cheer because you're getting more shells than you would if the prices stayed the same or they went up. So that's not a bad thing for you. Now, for your mom and dad, different story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when we're working with a couple, right, that sold two businesses, totally $5 million, and their income is exactly $200,000 that they want in retirement, well, a 4% withdrawal and $5 million, it becomes exactly $200,000 a year. However, <laughs> Different story if for whatever reason that $5 million, let's say, gets cut over a period of time, and typically it's very quick, it's cut by half. So now what was $5 million is suddenly $2.5 million. And if you still need a $200,000 income, right, what does the yield have to do? Double? Really? You have to go from 4% to 8%? So now with the combination of a withdrawal level there, and the decline at 50, we're darn close to 60%. And the math is very simple. If there's a loss due to withdrawals or market decline, 
that totals 60%, we need a gain of 150% to get back to even. So for them, I'm going to say, you don't want to cheer. This will not be fun because your chances of getting that, what may be $5 million or what is now $2.5 million, and particularly with continued withdrawals, the chances of ever getting back to that starting value of $5 million, well, I don't like those odds. Right. On the other hand, instead of saying, well, Kathy, just buy and hold, it'll come back. Yeah, it might come back after you die. That's what happened after the Great Depression, by the way, from what I can see. But if we can limit the losses to, let's say, 20% total, whether it was a combination of income or market decline, if the loss or the decline was, let's say, 20% in a given year, the math is also very simple and maybe a lot more agreeable. We need a gain of 25%, right, to get back to even. That might happen. I'll take those odds. But trying to get back to even requiring 150% gain? Well, that's a Hail Mary pass, and it's a very dicey game. It may be curtains. You run out of money before you run out of time. So do you see, it? to me, it's a very different scenario from the standpoint of who's trying to do what? Keep the account level or accumulate $5 million in the next two, 20 or 30 years? Totally different scenario. I couldn't agree more. It depends on so much where you are and what you're trying to achieve. But overall, when we look at the stock market or we just look at what investors are doing today, I read that around 35% of companies in the Russell 2000 index have not earned a profit in the past 12 months. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but it does seem that people, another example, 83% of the companies that have gone public this year are actually losing money in the US. <laughs> so, you know, Tesla being one of them. So people are investing. Yeah. In companies that haven't shown a profit, they're way overvalued. Again, does that concern you? Is there something wrong with our stock market today? Well, there's something wrong with our acceptance for risk. I like Warren Buffett's quote, risk is not knowing what you're doing. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> the, the data that you just reported sounds very familiar to me. Sounds like, oh, 2000 to 2002. And I, many of us remember it well, right? I mean, it was a magnificent 2000. Actually, I can recall it vividly. January of 2000 by itself was a spectacular month. And, and let's go back, okay? I love the question. Let's go back. I think it was December of 1996 that then Chairman Greenspan talked about irrational exuberance. 96. Now, for four years, everybody was saying, what are you talking about? He must be out of his mind. But let's just recognize with the NASDAQ, to say that's the index for stocks, the Dow and the S&P, last I looked, looking thanks to Yahoo Finance and the firm, our firm that does this kind of work, the Dow and the S&P doubled. The NASDAQ quadrupled. So what does that mean? $500,000, roughly 1995-96 by 2000 was worth, huh, four times five. That's $2 million? Really? And then by 19, 2002, roughly 24 months, starting early February of 2000, we saw an 80% decline. Wow. <laughs> so notice this guy was trying to be the canary in the coal mine, and people were telling him he was absolutely out of his mind. And it took about four years for what he said to show up with, oh, <laughs> there we are. Okay, that's quite significant. And what we saw then, which may draw some parallels to what we're seeing now, is it was you know the headline companies that were demonstrating that the market was hitting new highs. And so we drew conclusion that that was an indication as to what was going on with all of the companies, and it wasn't. So one of the articles I wrote was, I called it bad breath, you know, B-R-E-A-D-T-H, <laughs> which means that we've got the leaders taking us to new highs, 
but we don't see that 70-80% of the rest of the stocks in that particular index are a co-participant. So that would mean that our volume is low. That's a scary sign. So yeah, you may have the top 20 doing great, but then the 90-80-90% not participating, which means that there's a little disconnect there. <laughs> Pretty much a severe disconnect, really. Yeah, absolutely. So again, coming back to the headlines, what concerns do you have with what you're seeing the general public believing and maybe uninformed reporters reporting? Well, we're spending too little time really looking under the hoods. In other words, you know, if we look at last Friday, we had a great jobs report, right? And it shows that, uh, geez, uh, household income is the best ever. Okay, let's have a party. Only the people who can't party too well because they have a sense that something's awry. And it is. When we look at the household income back in, in 2008, thanks to the Census Bureau and the inflation calculators, we can see that the average household income, whether it's one or two people across the country working, it was about $57,000. But then for four years in a row, the income went down. Really? Household income went down for four years? Yes. It wasn't until 2013 that we saw $57,000 a year being the average household income. Really? That's quite remarkable. So when we run the numbers, we can see that the household income since 2008 has risen on average a fantastic, right? We, we should cheer about this, 0.66% per year. Huh? 0.66. And so now in 2017, we're at 61.4 roughly. This year, 2018 might be about $62,000. But then let's compare that to the rate of inflation, and that's why people go, well, wait a minute, that sounds good, but that somehow that doesn't feel good. Well, here's why. With inflation at 57000 in 2008, we need to have an income of like $67,400 in 2017 because inflation has beat the average income in terms of the rate of increase is 1.61% per year, 17% cumulative versus the average income, a whopping 6%, 6.7, nearly 7% cumulative. So that's why folks can kind of read the headlines and then look at their own situation and go, well, wait a minute, you know, geez, just to be where I was 10 years ago, my income needs to be about close to $70,000 today. And yet I'm supposed to cheer when it's at 62? Not much to cheer about. So I think probably what's happened is for those who have kept their jobs Maybe their income has continued to rise, but for many people, they lost the job 10 years ago and they can't duplicate that same job. So their income levels aren't what they were even 10 years ago. And maybe that helps explain why in some reports we can see that when we look at 70-year-olds today, by a two to three times margin, 70-year-olds today are filing bankruptcy as compared to 70-year-olds back in 1991. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. No reality. <laughs> so that's what's really going on. You know, so the, here's what's confused. I mean, there's a lot of things confusing to me, but this, this is one. I was um, in Las Vegas looking at some properties a couple of weeks ago and some stranger, kind of an old, very older man, uh, probably in, uh, I won't say the age, but much older. And he kind of walked by and said, hey, you know, what, what are you doing in Vegas? And I said, I'm here for business. And he said, well, how's business? And I said, you know, fantastic. And he said, oh, it's, yeah, thanks to Trump, right? And I said, well, you know, business was really fantastic under Obama, and it was really great under Bush. So, you know, it just, I'm not going to credit a president for 
my success. I'm successful because I've worked hard, you know? And so he just kind of went, oh, that's because you're a woman. And he walked off. (laughs) So yeah, it was very very interesting. Like just because I'm a woman, I I hate Trump or or something. That's, That's not the case. What I can't understand is why there's so much credit for things that maybe were already in motion before he took office. Or just like you said, where there's so much hype, but I'm not really sure what's changed. So can you help answer that for me? Right. Well, it depends on what the subject is. And let me apologize on behalf of men who discredit you and was you know, completely not respectful. I mean, I think that's pretty stupid. But <laughs> it you. just goes to show you how, yeah, I mean, we're, we're all looking for easy answers. And, you know, my first name is John. Uh, Donald's middle name is John. So and I may have more in common with this president than the last president. It's kind of interesting <laughs> to see. But, uh, you know, it's easy to put out that Twitter feed or the, you know, something on Facebook and people just buy into it as though that's what's really happening as opposed to looking at the real numbers. But what I think people don't do, regardless of president, is to determine what's your goal, okay? One gentleman we were talking to, 24 years old, and he's like, well, you know, I want the equivalent of my income. I have a good income now, but in 20, 12, 41 years, when I'm 65, I want the equivalent of income. So we helped him see that his goal is $2.2 million. And if he contributes $120 every paycheck, he gets paid twice a month through in his 401k over the next 41 years, and he gets like 8, 9, 10% return for the next 41 years, he'll have exactly $2.2 million. Okay. I mean, it's never going to be exact, but that's the math. But at least you can see, you know, he could see, and that's what I think more people need to see, is what are you trying to accomplish? Because if it's 2.2, 3.2, 1.6, it doesn't matter. But if you can't see your goal, you're lost on the carousel watching the news as opposed to seeing what you need to be hardworking at to achieve those goals to make sure you can show up and make work optional on your timetable. Mm. So, yeah. And the other part of it is, is taking the time to look at some of the data like that's provided by the Census Bureau. It's impartial. It's not political. And sometimes people get high on an idea. We were studying a company in the Midwest called Japs before World War II, and they changed their name to Jays just before World War II, smart move. And they expanded at the wrong time. And here's why. They looked at the sales data, and that's the problem with so many of the things that we look at. This person gets credit for it, or this went up, so it's just going to keep doing that. No, look, here's the thing. 14 is the age at which the average American consumes the most potato chips in life. (laughs) Okay, all right. So 41 is the age at which the average mom bought the average 14-year-old the most potato chips in life. (laughs) Mm. So this company was looking at increasing, and they decided to do that, family-owned and operated, at a time that no one bothered to go to the Census Bureau to see in the areas that we provide our wonderful product, you know, the best potato chips in town, uh, are the number of 14-year-olds growing, declining, or staying static? Well, they were staying static on the way to declining. So that's why it's no longer owned by the family. It's now a conglomerate, but it's not the same company that it was because they were looking at the sales data, decided more debt, more space, more people was in order. Uh, when they should have been either staying still or scaling backwards or expanding their territory. They missed the most crucial piece to the equation. 
And that you have to imagine was a lot of smart people with good intentions sitting around in the boardroom trying to make an intelligent decision. And not looking at demographics. Exactly. And they drive everything. Right. So what should we be looking at there? On the one hand, sounds like you follow Harry Dent, and he has the concern that there will be a surplus of homes as baby boomers exit or downsize, and that we will find ourselves with too much inventory and prices going down as a result. Do you agree with that? I, that logic makes sense to me. I mean, okay, let's look at the Census Bureau, okay? And, and a lot of people are in, in real estate or in securities. And again, we don't look at the data. 31 is the age at which the average American typically buys their first house. 41 is the age at which the average American typically buys their biggest houses. So let's look at 76 million people. And the way I look at it, yeah, let's look at it at the granular level. No matter, the U.S. is the only country where we had a baby boom generation in the world in history. Isn't that interesting? So if over a 60-year period, you've got great real estate, what caused that? Well, you may give a lot of things credit, but I'm going to say the primary driver was 76 million people coming out of the woodwork who grew up in a household, right? Now we have to have space for them. And that means we have to have a lot of building and construction, and that's all robust. And that means a lot of ancillary buying for the refrigerator and the new drapes and whatever, new floors, right? So that's the good news in terms of, and this comes from Schiller, by the way, that's what happened with the, the great real estate record for over the last six years. But the first thing I notice is that right now we have a history of real estate about 120 years. And from 1900 to 1940, lo and behold, U.S. real estate was underwater, So the only time we happen to be looking at real estate is the best half of the story. (laughs) That's over the time frame that 76 million people were coming into the equation. It seems reasonable to me that if you had to make room for all these people, the only thing that could happen as a result is as prices have to go up. Now, let's look forward because this gets more interesting. Boomers born 46 to 64. But Michelle Obama will be the youngest at 54. We'll represent the oldest as Donald John Wayne. George W. and Bill Clinton, they're all 72 this year. 79 is the age at which the average American sells their homes for, of course, different reasons. Here come 76 million people, if they follow this average, that will be selling over the next 20 years, starting any time now. And then let's understand, I mean, some people think this is pessimistic or depressing, but it's just what is. Mid-80s is the age at which most Americans go to heaven. Well, let's see. If it is about supply and demand and 76 million people push prices higher, if they go to heaven and we have 120, 130 years worth of inventory, where do you imagine prices are going to go? Uh, But what about the millennials? They're the largest generation now. Would they be able to fill that void? Not yet. Not at these prices. But let's just understand they have a different thinking than their parents. Their parents stood in line when interest rates were 16%. See, notice, isn't interest rate one of the things that's supposed to be a primary driver? Well, notice when interest rates were 16%, it didn't matter because you had all of these people coming out of college. They could get the money from their parents. You could go with no money down. Okay. But 16% was not a hurdle. And if you told those folks that they would see 3 or 4% money, they would have laughed you in your face. Right. You're and crazy. they certainly wouldn't be freaking out about 5% interest rates. Exactly. So let's just notice that in the late 70s, early 80s, everybody around the country was standing in line to buy the house as soon as they possibly could. 
And I remember vividly, you'd go to parties with your friends, and what was the first thing they asked you? Okay, Kathy, what'd you buy? Uh, John, what'd you buy? Uh, are you an escrow? That was like a rite of passage. So now look at their children. They don't give a damn. <laughs> They're not interested in a McMansion. They don't care about a driver's license, let alone a car. And they're, they're not working to go pay for the house. And they saw dad drive an hour back and forth between work and home. And they're like, I'm not doing it. You know, but see, again, let's look at the patterns. Boomers accepted this. Here's the mandate. Kathy, you're going to get married. You're going to have children. You're going to go to school. And you're going to buy a house. And what did all the boomers do? Check, 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 check. And what are their children doing? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. And, and so now we see, what, a third maybe living at home with no job and not going to school? Oh, that's different. And then 60% from what I can see took money out of retirement accounts if they had one. And another 60% isn't putting money in a retirement account. So are they going to be the salvation? I'm not seeing it. <laughs> now, if prices come to them, I think they may get in the game. But at these levels, they're so lofty that it's hard to, to get in. It's hard to even see the, the reason for getting in. And again, I don't see their desire being anything like what their parents' desire was. So these are different times with different people. Yeah, you know, we are seeing uh, millennials start to buy. So I do believe that at some point as they form families and as they settle down and grow up, there will be that desire to own I've got my own daughter who's an owner now and loving it, but uh, we'll see. We'll right. see. <laughs> yeah. All right. So where do you think is the safest place for your money today? Well, you know, let's spend a minute on real estate. So I'm going to say to you, you can see my position is that there could very well be headwinds to residential real estate. And I mean, I would not be surprised to see not only prices go down, but rents go down. And then so when people talk about, well, I have all this income from all this real estate, you know, the rentals, I'm like, well, have you imagined that the income could go down? And most folks just can't imagine that, which is exactly what happened in 29 to 32. So I like to look at it, thanks to my engineering clients, you know, let's look at the worst case scenario. If you can weather that, you're fine. If you're not prepared for it, you're probably going to have an OS moment. So I'm saying caution to all things residential real estate if we think prices are going to go higher from here. On the other hand, if it is the case, as I believe it to be so, that 10,000, 11,000 people a day are turning 65 through the mid-2030s. It suggests to me that owning healthcare-related properties is the next wave, if you will, because you've got to have all of these office parks, these complexes of doctors. You know, one of the companies we like a lot, for example, one of the operators has 100 nursing care facilities in three states and the buildings were constructed in the last 20 years. So see the, what I'm saying? To residential real estate, headwinds. To real estate related for healthcare, tailwinds, because people are moving in a different kind of scenario, spending more money than they ever imagined for the rest of their lives. It's going to increase on healthcare. And let's notice that this income is primarily derived from what? The U.S. government. Hmm. That's probably not a bad combination. <laughs> and then the other parts come from either cash or from insurance. But, you know, if you're going to have a 40,000 square foot complex and most of your income comes by way of the U.S. government, I think that's probably going to be pretty consistent and probably won't squat on you. Hmm. So that's real estate. <laughs> Very interesting. All right. Well, I appreciate you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom on The Real Wealth Show. 
My pleasure, Kathy. Yeah. Any last tips you want to give our audience? Uh, well, sure. Here's a good one. My industry, the securities industry, has said, Kathy, buy and hold, always and forever. And that's about the only concept we've conveyed. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say to you, but wait, let's look at it this way. When you're making contributions, that's true. The market was off 50% oh, 0.02, 57% 08.09 from top to bottom, worst case scenarios we've ever seen. That's two 50% declines in 10 years. If you're making contributions, who cares where the market is? You can afford to buy and hold and buy more shares when the prices are low because you're making contributions. But now let's just go back to 08. And let's suppose that you retired with a million dollars. And let's suppose that by March of 2009, the market took away 57% of your million dollars. Well, that's minus 570. And let's suppose for these are IRA dollars or you have to take a withdrawal of a whopping 3%. That's not much. That's 30,000 on a million. Big deal, right? Now, here we are. You're between the market loss and the withdrawal. Your account is off 60%. What was a million is now 400,000. Oh, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> now we're back to needing that 150%. Now you got to go back to work. Just to get back to, yes. And you're not going to make what you used to make. So, Instead of buying and holding, the question becomes, how can you see the companies that are doing different work? They're not just rearranging the chairs on the Titanic as we're going down to hit the iceberg on the ship. We're moving out of risk assets into either cash or alternatives where we can minimize the declines on this $1 million so that instead of being off 60%, maybe we're only off 20%. And now we have a chance to stay in the game because we simply need a 25% return to get that million dollars after you know, $200,000 loss, 800000 back to a million. So look to see what companies do that kind of work, active management in the real world, moving out of risk assets when things go awry and back into risk assets when the coast seems to be clear and we're hitting new highs or we can certainly buy at better lows. That is a great answer because just like real estate, I'm interviewed quite often and I'm asked how was the real estate market and I just kind of smirk because there is no such thing as a real estate market. There's a lot of different cities, a yeah. lot of different neighborhoods. It's the same with stocks, right? You could pick good ones yes. and you can pick losers and you could pick winners. Exactly. You got another companies that you're dealing with. All right. Well, again, John, thank you so much for being here on The Real Wealth Show. It's been truly a pleasure. My pleasure as well, Kathy. Look forward to seeing you again soon. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. If you want to find out more about Opportunity Zones, and how you can sell a stock and invest the capital gain into Opportunity Zones, thereby deferring the tax you'd have to pay on that gain until 2026, and then paying absolutely no tax on the gain of the new investment in the Opportunity Zone if you hold it for 10 years. We've done about three or four webinars on the topic with top CPAs who have been studying this new tax law. You can listen to those at realwealthshow.com. Just click on the Learn tab and you'll be able to see our archived webinars. We also just did a live event on the topic and recorded that as well. You may have to join the network to watch those, but it's free to join. And it's definitely not normally free to get this kind of free tax advice. So check it out at realwealthshow.com. I'm Kathy Betke, and thanks again for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Bye-bye.